0: Thank you for tuning into Emanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, good morning, Emmanuel Faith. It's so good to see you today. If you're joining us online, a special welcome to you as well. If you're uh, back after joining us maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time last Sunday in our celebration of the resurrection, I just wanna say, I'm so glad you're back and we would love to help you get connected to the life of the church here. And there's a connection card in the seat back in front of you. You can drop that in the box on your way out and we will follow up and would love to get you connected and find a way to, to grow in your life of faith here as a church body. It was March 22nd when a number of text gurus posted an open letter calling on the pause for the development of artificial intelligence. They wanted to call attention to the fact that things were moving at a, at really an exponential pace and in their opinion, getting out of hand. Listen to one of the things that they wrote in this letter. They said, advanced artificial intelligence could represent a profound change in the history of life on earth and should be planned for and managed with commensurate care and resources. Now in this letter, they started to tease out what they meant by that. They asked questions like, should we automate away all jobs, including ones that bring fulfillment to human lives? Should we develop non-human minds that might eventually outnumber and outsmart and replace human minds? It's a great question. Should we risk the loss of our civilization? Should we let computers and bots write sermons and term papers? That was my addition, but <laughs> that's actually just what the robot told me to say. So I said, and I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But the plea of some in this letter was to put some sort of leadership structure in place to assess the ethics of AI before it gets out of hand, if it hasn't already. Because there's a difference between going to the self-checkout aisle in the grocery store and self-driving cars and autonomous weapons programmed to kill. Can we agree? In 1818, English author Mary Shelley penned her now famous novel, Frankenstein. The plot of the novel as I'm sure you're probably familiar with is about a doctor named Victor Frankenstein who figured out a way to create life out of human parts that he found in a graveyard. Um, If you're familiar with the book, you know that that experiment did not turn out well, that the monster turned on him and others and started to wreak havoc on human life. And it seems to me that her book feels more prophetic now than maybe it ever has before. The problem with Frankenstein and with artificial intelligence is something impersonal creating, something impersonal potentially taking over, something without personhood and the ability to um, adequately assess what's good and evil, not only creating, but, but dominating and having power. And for the last few hundred years, humanity has been struggling with that question. Questions like, what what does it mean if things trend towards depersonalization or autonomization or artificial intelligence over and against genuine personhood? However, I would suggest to you that those questions are not only 200 or so years old. Those questions are ancient. Those questions are as old as time. Let me put it this way if something impersonal created us, what's the big worry if the impersonal things continue to create? This is just in line with the image that we were created in. We're just taking it to the nth degree begs a question, who or what created us? What lies at the heart of what does it mean to be human? What's the core of our purpose on this earth and in this life? These are the questions that the apostle John addresses in his gospel account of the life of Jesus. Today, we're starting a new series in the gospel of John. It's gonna be a 44 week series in total. We're dividing it up into different parts, sort of like a a seasons of a podcast or a Netflix show that you watch. But over the next 44 weeks, we're gonna look at every single verse, actually not over the next 44 weeks. In 44 messages, we will look at every verse in John's gospel. We'll take a few breaks here and there in order to dive into different topics because of the season that we'll be in. But we will study the entirety of John's gospel. John was one of Jesus's best friends. In fact, in his book about Jesus, he calls himself the one that Jesus loved. And when you write your own gospel, you can call yourself whatever you want, I guess. Uh, Most people think that John wrote this gospel between 85 and 95 AD. It's the oldest of the four gospel accounts that we have. And it's the most unique. The first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often referred to as the synoptic gospels. They tell many of the same stories. John writes after those letters were already in circulation and he wants to add to the picture of who Jesus was. 90% of John's gospel is unique to John. A gospel is is part biography, part history, part theology, and entirely good news, entirely good news. And one of the things I love about the gospel of John is that John tells us why he went to the effort to write these 21 chapters. Listen to what he said. He said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written see these, say these two words with me church so that so John why did you write this book why do we have this book in our bible right now what was your purpose behind writing this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name and over the next 44 messages in John, as we dive into the life of Jesus, my prayer has been, Jesus awaken us to new life. Breathe something fresh into us that we might truly experience maybe in a new and fresh way, what it means to have life in your name. If you can't tell, I'm just a little bit excited. So if you have your Bible, would you open with me to John chapter one, John chapter one. Um, we, we also have these uh, gospel of John journals for sale in the lobby right after the service. Uh, they have the text of John uh, on one side and then a place to write down your notes and thoughts on the other side of the page. They're $5. I would encourage you to grab one and just bring it with you until after Easter of next year. Okay. Okay. In her essay, The Fisherwoman's Daughter, Ursula Guin wrote, First sentences are doors to worlds. And what she meant is that authors have always had a way of drawing you in. Good authors from the very first page in a book or an essay some masterfully foreshadow what's about to come or what you're about to read more of. I think of Charles Dickinson's opening of A Tale of Two Cities. He famously wrote, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. So you've heard this, you've heard this, yeah. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was a season of light, it was a season of darkness. It was a run on sentence, but Charles Dickens can get away with it because he's Charles Dickens. It continues to go from there, but that's the opening. It it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. He and others draw you in like somebody reeling back a kite and bringing you closer to the story. It's exactly what John does at the beginning of his biography about Jesus. Listen to his words. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. How's that for an opening line? Is right. I think we're so familiar with these opening lines of John's Gospel that at times we can just sort of glance right over them. But my hope is to today is to reintroduce you to the awe and wonder of what John has penned through the prompting and leading of the Holy Spirit. John does not begin his story of Jesus with Jesus lying in a manger in Bethlehem. He begins his story of Jesus with a story of the cosmos of why anything exists is because of Jesus. And in the first two verses of his book of good news about Jesus, John in a brilliant way brings together seemingly distant ideas, like boys and girls on opposite sides of the gym at a junior high dance. John is gonna bring two ideas Together, and he's going to make them dance partners. And at the end of their dance, it's going to seem like they're dancing their first dance at the wedding. Okay, the two dance partners are are the Greeks and the Hebrews, uh, the philosophers and and Genesis. And he's going to bring them together by using this one word, and it's the word word. In the Greek, it's the word logos. Would you say that with me? Logos. Logos. And it means word or statement or phrase or speech, or you could have sort of imagine it as like an embodying idea. But as we'll see, it means so much more than that for the Greeks that John was writing to. Most people think that John wrote the gospel of John from Ephesus. So he has a bunch of Greek thinkers that he's surrounded by and his gospel is writing in conversation with them. And he's pulling from those cultural scripts from page one of his story about Jesus. Um, In 1511, Raphael uh, completed his famous painting that's entitled The School of Athens. And in this painting, he tried his best to, Uh, depict some of the greatest Greek thinkers of all time. Now, if you were to zoom in right here, you'll find a man by the name of Heraclitus who lived in, any guesses? All right, I'll tell you. Ephesus. Thank you, Ephesus. Lived in Ephesus in the sixth century BC. My guess is that maybe you don't know a lot about Heraclitus, but my guess is you also do know one of his ideas. It was Heraclitus who said, you will never stand in the same river twice. And by that, he meant the world is a bit chaotic. It continues to move and it changes at an ever increasing pace. So he wasn't just talking about moving bodies of water. He was also talking about the world that we live in. And and by making that point, he was also saying life has a tendency to be be a bit chaotic. and, And so it would make sense if something was holding that chaos underneath. He called that something, and he guesses Logos. it was the organizing principle of the universe in Greek thought. It was the thing underneath the thing that net that holds it all if you 're a Star Wars fan, it was the force that was at work, holding it all together and that idea of of Lagos was developed throughout time in Greek thought. In fact, Plato is quoted as having said it may be that someday there will come from God, a word, a logos who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. And John is like, hold my Bible while I introduce you to Jesus who is the logos. See, at this point in the first few verses of John, the word "word" or logos is a bit enigmatic still, but becomes more clear as we read through this first chapter. In verse 14, we see that the word, the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. In verse 17, we see that that word that became flesh and dwelt among us has a name and his name is Jesus, right? So listen again to the first few verses of John with the name Jesus in place of Logos. In the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. And John in two verses has just exploded the minds and hearts of both the Greeks in his audience and the Hebrew thinkers in his audience, those who were attached to philosophy and those who were attached to Genesis have been brought to the middle of the dance floor to reckon with history itself. Because John starts his story at the beginning, not at the beginning of Jesus's earthly life, but at the beginning of life itself. So it turns out that the story of Jesus is way bigger than the 33 years he spent walking this earth. The point John is making is that at the center of the universe is the person of Jesus, not an impersonal force. From page one, that's what he's laying out for us. Not an organizing principle, but personhood. Not something, but someone. Not a what, but a who. Not not an enigmatic mystery, but someone you can know. Not someone who, something is distant, but someone who's close and who's near and from the get-go. John pulls from the scriptures and pulls from the cultural scripts of his day, all to bring us to the center of this dance floor to invite us into the world of following Jesus. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Now, there are about a thousand things that I would wanna say about these first five verses. I thought about sending an email and just saying, bring a snack because we're going to be here for like three hours, but I didn't. And so I'm going to do my best to contain my own excitement and to stay within a reasonable time frame. And so let me begin before I even get into the notes that you have in front of you with just making three observations. Number one, John begins with the phrase in the beginning, which makes me ask the question in the beginning, what? In the beginning of what? Now, those are the first three words of the Hebrew Bible and John is intentionally calling back to the very beginning of the Hebrew scriptures. And in the beginning of what? In the beginning of time itself, in the beginning of existence, in the beginning of anything that we see around us actually existing that beginning. There was never a time, John is saying, when Jesus did not exist. Jesus already existed was somebody before he was born in Bethlehem. I love the way that scholar and author Fred Sanders put it when he said, Jesus Christ is eternal, the son of God. The second person of the Trinity, he's called son because he's the son of the father from all eternity. When he becomes incarnate, he becomes the son of Mary, the promised son of David, the Messiah. But listen, but there was never a time when he became the son of God. That is who he eternally and essentially is. For us and for our salvation, the eternal Son of God became the incarnate Son. Did you hear him echo back to the Nicene Creed that we read a few moments ago? What's his point? Jesus is eternal. Jesus is eternal. Second, we see that he says, and the word was with God. The word with in the Greek is this word pros, and it means to be in close connection to. It means toward. It means very close to. It implies an intimate connection, not just rubbing shoulders with, but being intimately connected to. Now, I want you to notice that the word Jesus is both in relationship with God, pros, with but also distinctly himself, which starts to stir up some questions probably in us. And John wants to stave those off. And so he's gonna cut us off at a polytheistic pass. And he's gonna say in no uncertain terms, the word was God. The word was God. John isn't mincing words. He's not dealing with some sort of demigod. This is no less than God himself. Now, Let's do just a little bit of um, apologetics here because less than a quarter mile away from our church, if you go down in you will get to one of the Jehovah's Witnesses Kingdom Hall. And in their translation of the scriptures, John chapter one, verse one reads, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was a God. Not God, a God. And here's their reasoning. So stick with me in this. I'm just going to two minutes and then we'll come back to English. Okay, But, but in the Greek, there's, there's no definite article in the Greek. And that's what they'll point out. And they're absolutely right. There is no definite article before the word theos in John chapter 1. And so in the New World Translation, they translate it and the word was a God. Their point is that Jesus is God-like, but not God. He's the first created being of God, but he is not God. Now, I'm just gonna spoiler alert, get to the end. That's not only bad theology, it's bad Bible translation because if you were to be consistent with that translation technique, you would have to do that every single time. There's no definite article preceding theos and they don't even do that in John chapter one itself. Listen to a few other places where you would have to do that. There came a man who was sent from a God, verse six. He gave them the right to become children of a God, verse 12. They were born of a God, verse 13. No one has ever seen a God, verse 18. None of those verses have a definite article in front of the word theos, And yet they translate every single one of them, God. And so in order to be consistent, you need to do that in the very first verse as well, as maybe uncomfortable as it makes some people that what what the scriptures are clearly saying is that Jesus is true God from true God. As the Nicene Creed put a stake in the ground in 325 and said, this is what we believe about the nature and essence of who Jesus is. From the inception of the church, we have claimed that God exists as a monotheistic God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But John's point is Jesus is fully divine, hard stop. Fully divine, hard stop. Not only does John begin by pulling the cultural scripts of his day in Ephesus, he begins by dancing with the Hebrew scriptures as well. Listen to the way that the scriptures open. Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, does this sound familiar? Okay, it should. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse three, it says, and God, what? Said, God said, let there be light. And then what happened? Light. From the beginning, God speaks and things come into existence that were formerly not in existence. How does he create? He said, he he says a word, he says a word. And John says, oh, oh, let me tell you more about this word. All things were made through him. Jesus and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, now you guys, you have to know that this is an unpopular idea in 85 to 95 AD and this is an unpopular idea in 2023. Can I get an amen? It's unpopular. John's writing to Stoics and philosophers who claimed that there was a creative force at the center of the universe, an impersonal logos or an impersonal force. Today, John writes in conversation with philosophical atheists who claim that at the center of the universe is cosmic chance. And to both of those, he says, you're wrong, you're wrong. At the center of it all, Is a God who exists in three persons who creates through his word. His word's name is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who created and sustains not some of it, but all of it, but all of it. In the beginning was not an impersonal force. It was not an accidental explosion. In the beginning, there was God creating through Jesus, his word. This is the beauty and majesty and wonder of, of being alive. We are not accidents, we are intentioned. We were not created by artificial intelligence. We were created and designed by the creator of it all himself. I love the way that Eugene Peterson put it when he said, to this day, whenever the brightness of the creation story is dulled by depersonalized study or by fogged cliches, John's story is the gospel of choice to penetrate back to the original Genesis blaze. Oh, Eugene, so good. The original Genesis blaze of God created through His Word. And His Word's name is Jesus. You are not an accident. You are not an invention of artificial intelligence or an impersonal force or an organizing principle. No, you were designed and created by Jesus himself. Listen to the way that Paul puts it in the book of Colossians. He says, he, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him, all things hold together. Like right now, he holds them all together. Which brings me to the number 66,600. Anybody know what that is? It's the miles per hour that you and I are currently Flying through outer space. That's how fast our orbit is around the sun. So think about this for a moment. This is a famous Earthrise picture. We are somewhere on that blue dot, traveling 66,600 miles an hour, and none of us have a steering wheel. Like, just, just stop on that for a moment because we live so much of our lives under the illusion of control. Let me say it again. You're traveling 66,600 miles an hour with no steering wheel. Like, like what control do we really have? And I think it wants to point us back to the fact that well, we don't have control, but praise be to God, Jesus is fully in control. He not only created, but he sustains it all by the very breath of his mouth. He's the one who's holding it and you and me together so he can be out on the sea of Galilee and a storm can rise up and he will say to that storm, peace be still. And his disciples can be terrified and he can be resurrected and walk through a wall and meet them and they're like, what? And he will say to them, peace, my peace, I give to you. And I just wonder if he's created and he sustains it all, what do you need him to create and sustain in you today? Because he's doing this. You tell me what's too big. Tell me what's outside of the realm of possibility. John says, that he created it all. Through him, it was all created. And in him, John says, was what? Was life. And the life was the light of men. Notice once again, John's making a controversial statement. He's telling us that we need something from outside of ourselves to bring us life. We can't do it on our own. And so in the first five verses, John is introducing us to these major themes that he's gonna circle back to throughout his brilliant work. The second theme is a the theme of life. He'll go on to say, Jesus is the bread of life. He'll go on to say that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. He will say that there is life in the name of Jesus. And every time he speaks this word of life, he's speaking it into a world that's filled with pain and death. The brilliant turn that John makes in verse four, that's sort of buried at times in our English translation but shines brightly in the Greek is using the word that he chooses for the word life because he had two choices. He could have used the word bios. It's where we get our world word biology. And it means existence. And since John's just talked about existence, Jesus created it all. It would have made sense to use the word bios. But there's a second word he could have chosen and it's the word zoe. And zoe doesn't mean just like being alive and taking breaths. It means like being alive and loving the fact that you're alive. It means being alive and drinking deeply of the world around you going, thank you God for creating me and placing me here. Uh, zoe is meaning, it's purpose, it's abundance. It transcends just taking breaths and it moves into really truly living. Any guesses? Which word John uses? Wouldn't it be disappointing if I said bios? No. Sorry, sorry. No, he uses a word zoe. And the first invitation to the gospel readers is come into union with the word who made you and come to life. Or you may hear it as something like, uh, you came from him, so come back to him. Or, or you were made for him. And John's point is not only that Jesus is the one who creates and sustains, but that Jesus is the one who awakens to life. I don't know if you've noticed, but we've gotten a little bit of rain lately, (laughs) just a bit during this winter season. It actually feels like winter, like this is Southern California, we're not supposed to have winter. But um, my yard like yours has what I'm just going to term as some unplanned greenery in it. Anybody with me just wanna say like, yes and amen. Now I I came back from uh, a run a number of days ago and this unplanned greenery had sprouted these just gorgeous flowers. And I was like, God, thank you, what a gift. And I just sort of filed it away in my mind. And the next day I'm walking out to take my kids uh, to, to the car to go to school. And I'm like, you guys come over here. You're not gonna believe what's growing in our front yard. And I brought them over to where these flowers were the day before and none of them were out. None of them were out. And I was like, that's really disappointing. You're just going to have to take my word for it. There were flowers here yesterday. I get home from work, the sun's hitting them, and what happens? The flowers come out, right? So they look a little bit like this when they're in bloom. These flowers have bios all the time. But when the sun hits them, they have zoe, they have life. You have bios as long as you're breathing. But John would say, you need the sun to hit you, to have life, to have life he'll go on and he'll tell us that this life is not merely earthly life, it's eternal life. It's eternal life. In John chapter five, verse 24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You see how John's continually speaking, these word, writing these words of Jesus that speak life into places of death. He'll not only say that it's, it's eternal life, not earthly life, he also makes the point that it's not mere existence, it's abundance. In one of the most famous passages in all of John's gospel, and one of my favorites, John writes, or Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus says, I have come, that they may have what? Life. Zoe! And have it to the full. So Jesus says, listen, I'm speaking the kind of life that makes death a reality, but not a finality. And I'm bringing the kind of life that not only lasts forever, but it's the kind of life that you would want to last forever. That kind of life is the life that Jesus is bringing. So maybe today you would just utter a simple prayer, Jesus. I want to experience that kind of life. help me, awaken me, create in me, sustain in me, do something new, do something fresh in me. The beautiful thing about eternal life in Jesus is that it starts now, not just when you die. As Dallas Willard famously quipped, eternity is now in session. True. John ends this, just brief intro by saying, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And once again, we're introduced to a major theme that over 21 chapters, John will come back to over and over. Again, he comes back to Jesus's creative power. He comes back to Jesus speaking life into death and over and over he will come back to the idea of a light shining in darkness. In fact, in one of Jesus's seven definitive I am statements, Jesus would say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And I think if we're gonna really grasp what, what John's saying here, we need to talk about both darkness and, and light. Darkness is often a metaphor in the scriptures and, and especially in John's gospel for two things. Number one, evil and suffering. So when the darkness comes, evil, suffering and painful times come. Um, I experienced uh, darkness just this weekend. Got a call on Friday morning that one of my good friends uh, passed away unexpectedly. 40 years old, wife, two kids. Uh, Just saw him here at Easter service a week ago. Darkness, pain, suffering, valley of the shadow. And as we'll see throughout the gospel of John, that this is often the work of the enemy, but sometimes it's just living in a broken, fallen world. Here's the second thing it means. It means ignorance. Like if you walk in darkness, uh, oftentimes you're gonna stub your toe on things. You're gonna run into things that you didn't see coming. So it means both of those things. And we don't get the ability or we don't have the ability to solve the problem of darkness in our world on our own. That's once again, controversial statement John's making. You don't have enough light in you to provide the light that you need. We were people who were walking in darkness. But we have seen a great light and his name is Jesus. The light comes from outside of us to shine on us. And Jesus is the one who not only creates and sustains, who not only awakens to life, but he's also the one who illuminates darkness. Before we add our yes and amen to the fact that Jesus is light, let's just recognize that when The light illuminates the darkness. It can sting a little bit, at least at first. Anyone? When it exposes us and our own darkness, it hurts. It might even, you may even add in your notes, the phrase, ouch, that helps. Because that's what happens when the light shines on us. Um, Kelly and I, my wife Kelly and I are are redoing the cabinets in our kitchen right now. And um, so before they tore all the old cabinets out, we had to go through and pack all the things that were in our cabinets. And it shined a light (laughs) on what was in our cabinets. It shined a light on how many ways I have accumulated to create one of God's greatest gifts of coffee. I have an electric coffee brewer, a single pour over, a Chemex, an AeroPress, a clever brewer, three French presses, and my wife has a Keurig, okay? So you just shine the light, shine the light. And when the light exposes, it hurts before it heals. And here, here's the deal, yes. When the light shines in your life, points out an area of sin, an area of compromise, an area where you've just gone like, nah, it's not a big deal, or no one's ever gonna find out. I assure you Jesus in his grace and mercy wants to shine on that today, but it's gonna hurt before it heals. Will you let him shine? Will you let him expose the darkness that's in you and that's in me? Because when he exposes, he always does it to point us to Jesus and to point us to life eternal. I love the way that Paul puts it when he says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Does this sound familiar? okay, good, um, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ in the face of Jesus. Like he, he's gonna shine on you. He's gonna expose darkness in you in order to point you to Jesus, to lead you to him. To lead you to his grace, to lead you to his mercy, to lead you to his redemption, to lead you to his healing. And I love that as we read through John chapter one, verses one through five, this word shines is the only verb that's in the present tense. So so John's saying this light of Jesus is not only not only shown when he walked the face of the earth, but it is still shining. It's still shining. Not only that, but the darkness has not overcome it. There's so much debate about this word overcome in some translations it'll say has not understood it, has not comprehended it. And the question is, well, which is it? Is it he hasn't over, the darkness hasn't overcome it or doesn't understand it? And I would say, yes. John intentionally chooses an ambiguous word to expand the categories in our imagination of what he is in fact talking about. And my conviction, the conviction of a lot of scholars is that this ever shining light is echoing back to the empty tomb that we celebrated together last week. The darkness is the cross that tried its best, did its best work in order to take out Jesus and in order to ruin the plan that God had to redeem humanity. But darkness at its worst allowed light to shine at its brightest. When Jesus walks out of the grave, he's declaring, The darkness may be present, but it will never understand or overcome or have victory over the light. And can we all agree that light does some of its best work when it's darkest? When it's darkest, you shine just a little light and it begins to illuminate. Everything. So take heart, friends, take heart. The light of the resurrection still shines in the darkest and most desperate of situations. We rely on the God who raises the dead. Darkness will never overcome the light. The gates of Hades will never prevail against his church. And so in these first five verses, John composes almost like an overture to a, to a movie or, or an opera where, where these, these themes that he develops and introduces, he's gonna come back to over these next 21 chapters of Jesus's deity, of creation itself, of life, Of light, of darkness, of victory. And just like an overture that introduces in brief themes that will be developed in further detail throughout the story, John wants to invite us in. Can can you hear the music? Can you hear the music? Jesus is the one, he's the one who created and sustains. He's the one who awakens to life. He's the one who illuminates the darkness. Can you, can you hear the music? At the center of existence is not artificial intelligence. It, it, it's, it's not the force. It's not an organizing principle. At the center of the universe is God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And friends, since persons are at the center of it all, relationship is at the core. Relationship is at the core. If artificial intelligence were at the center, have at it. But God in three persons is at the center, creating out of love and calling you back out of love. And so I just want to give you some time to just sit with that for a moment. Let God press on you. And maybe just, you just close your eyes and and bow your head. You You just pray something simple like, God, what do you want to create or sustain in me? God, what do you want to awaken in me? God, what do you want to illuminate in me. Let me just pause. We'll let the music play. And would you just ask the spirit to speak to you? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we ask that you do your work in us. Lord Jesus, Messiah, Son of God, Lord, I pray over the people in this room that feel like they're hanging on by a thread. You're the creator and sustainer. Would you sustain them and create new life in them? Jesus, I pray over the people in this room who just feel like they're, they've gone into becoming dormant, just asleep, would you awaken new life, not just bios, but Zoe, please, Lord, for the glory of your name. And Lord, for, for those who are experiencing death in a myriad of different ways, would you be the kind of God that awakens by shining your bright light. God, create, sustain, awaken, illuminate. We pray for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.